0: Welcome to Between Two Chairs, demystifying commercial real estate, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and trends on the South Florida commercial real estate market with your hosts, Fernando Arencivia Jr. and Jennifer Woolman. In each episode, we dive into the world of commercial real estate and break down complex concepts to make them accessible for everyone. Whether you're a real estate professional, a curious investor, or just interested in the South Florida market in general, between two chairs is the podcast for you. So pull up a chair and join us.
1: welcome everybody to between two chairs today i'm so excited because we're interviewing only our third guest so you're number three um estrellita sofia sibila and for those of you who don't know Estrellita. Well, first of all, the word means little star, but to me, she is a big star. She is a land use and zoning attorney here in Miami, and I am grateful to George Guerra of RESF who got me out of a bind when I'm like, I can't find my my other land use attorney is too busy can't take my deal. I need another one, and they're like, Oh my gosh, Estrellita's the best. I've known her for forever, and I now have a new wonderful land use and zoning attorney. So I know. You You went to UM Estrellita and that is her name it's not Estrella it's Estrellita i always get a call going wait is it Estrellita and you just have her marked extra special in your phone because you love her so much or is it Estrella? and i'm like no no it really is Estrellita and yes i would probably do Estrellita if her name was Estrella (laughs) because i do love her that much you went to UM graduated from UM law school so give us a real quick little background
2: So first of all, thank you for inviting me to be on this show. I've listened to you all banter about real estate and I just love it so much. You break it down in such an easy way for people to understand whether they're fully engulfed in our industry or just wanting to learn about real estate. I think you all do such a great job of really breaking it down and explaining it into these wonderful bits that are easy to get and easy to implement. So I'm excited to share my time with you this morning. So I am a born and raised Miami native. I am a triple cane. I went there for undergraduate law school. And then I also did a master's of law in real estate development and finance. And I've always had a love for real estate that started with my mom, who would take me with all these drives on the weekends The drives were always free and open houses were free to attend. So (laughs) it was a fun way to get us out of the house to spend very little money, but also educate us on property and seeing, you know, what's out there and what we could strive for, for ourselves, for our families and for our clients in the future. So my start was that going to open houses and getting to know different types of property. And then my father's been an investor in real estate. He's also an attorney. But over the years, he bought different properties, both in residential and commercial. And he used to take me along with him and take me to these different commercial properties. And he'd say, well, what do you like about this one? What don't you like about this one? And it was always really interesting the perspective that I would bring. I was you know, maybe 10 years old at the time, but I always had something to say about it. And over the years, it just always made me, I think, a better attorney, a better practitioner, and just someone that was more open to understanding that everybody brings a fresh perspective to the deal, even if it's a 10-year-old. So that's kind of where I got my start in real estate. Of course, my love for it Um, just has continued to grow. I love building community, creating places where people live, work, and play, and also creating the community fabric where all of us really get to enjoy not just the places, but the people and the opportunities that we can all engage in.
0: I wanted to say thank you for the kind words. I think we are kindred spirits. Um, I've heard you speak many times on zoning issues in front of, of, of an audience. You have tremendous presence, but you also have that ability to really break down the you know what looks to be a very complicated, purposefully difficult process that you have to engage in into something that is very direct and simple. And you go to UM, you get your law degree, uh, you have this love for real estate. Was it a purposeful direction in your life to do zoning uh, and to get involved into land land use?
2: A hundred percent. So I used to watch, and I'm going to basically confess the level of nerdiness that, <laughs> that I do.
0: <entail>. So <laughs>
2: I used to watch the zoning hearings at city of Miami and I thought it was awesome. And I loved watching it because it was the future. I, my mind and my personality type is, I'm an ENTJ. I think I'm a futurist. I could deal with things that aren't here and see how to get from A to Z. And I think that's what makes me a very strong lawyer in this particular area. And for me, I just love to see it. I watched all the hearings. I was like, Oh, this is amazing. This new project is coming. And at the time, one of my mentors, Lucia Doherty with Rieber Chorek, she, you know, she was at the top of her game and every single project that she would bring before the commission, she'd get a round of applause. And it looked easy, of course. But I didn't realize that it was months and months and months of work that went into the project and the application before you actually got to that commission hearing and the presentation. She made it look easy because she was super seasoned, an eloquent speaker and just a wonderful lawyer. And I learned so much from her in in terms of how to present before these commissions, just from observing some of the folks that were the best in the business. And to me, I always loved Dealing with stuff that didn't exist. And I loved seeing, you know, a little square patch of grass and imagining, you know, what we could have there and seeing, you know, someone with the idea and, and really the fortitude to move forward and take that risk and present a new project and, and be the sort of creator. You know what I mean? It takes a lot of creativity and a lot of, of, you know, intestinal fortitude to move forward with some of these very
1: large (laughs) projects
2: with very big dollar signs involved and You know, it's it's a very type of special person. So
1: So he didn't admit it, but he also loves to dive into zoning maps. He says he geeks out on them. And he has a speech that's memorized because he's told it over and over about Little Haiti. And when you start, I mean, sorry, Little Havana, when he started to dive in Little Havana. And he's got this, it's not a screensaver, but to me, it seems (laughs) like it is because we pull it up so much as an example of zoning and how you can find out a history of, of an area not only where it's going to your point in the future, but where it's been and how it got to where it is today, and what makes a certain area either a great community or a great community with potential to like raise and redo and get it right. He was super excited when when we said that we were going to interview you.
2: Yeah, I think what I what I love most about zoning is you you really know are working in the history of the area, but you're also working in the future of the area at the same time. So you have to be respectful of what the history is in that particular area, not just the parcel and the block itself, but the neighborhood as a whole. And then also look at, you know, in the future, what is our desire for that particular neighborhood and how do we want to shape it? Because our built environment is the largest shaper of how we're going to engage in that neighborhood and you know whether people are going to be attracted to come and stay or if they're going to just you know drive on by so we need to be very intentional about that in the developments and that's really been at the forefront of zoning policy in our larger cities throughout Miami-Dade County for over the last decade you know what i mean in terms of pedestrian friendliness more sustainable type development projects that are more mixed use so that we do have that variety of everyday retail at the ground level and, you know, services at the ground level and residential above. So it all goes back into really creating that fabric of the community and and understanding how our built environment is going to dictate
1: how we use these spaces in the future and how our community is going to grow in the future as well. Thank you for that insight. And so you went to UM, I'm trying to remember when when Miami 21 was implemented, but that was done by um, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Plater Zyberg and her husband Duaney and what difference do you see between like a Miami 21 zoning and let's say an area that's not in Miami that might be an unincorporated Dade and doesn't have as intentional and more updated zoning because Miami 21 is fairly recent whereas Miami Dade's zoning code overall is is fairly low.
2: So Miami 21 is what they call a form based code so it's basically takes larger intensity, moves it to the corridors, and then has a step-down effect as you enter into more residential areas. So being a form-based code, what they did was in zoning ordinance 11,000, which was a predecessor to Miami 21, in that code, you had a lot of incompatibility because you had what was otherwise the C1 commercial zoning, and that was abutting what would otherwise be an R1 residential single family. So when they'd made those changes, the idea was that they would create a code that was more protective of the adjacent residential properties while creating a step-down effect from the commercial and more intensified residential into the single-family neighborhoods. The other thing that happened, too, was that we used to have a process called a major-use special permit, which was a permit that was required for basically developments of a larger size. They had different minimums, including if it was over 200 units, it had to go through a major use special permit. So those were the ones that were going to public hearing and had a lot of the feedback from the public. In Miami 21, they did away with the major use special permit process, giving a little bit more certainty to the developers with the properties that they were looking to develop, but brought in some other types of administrative approvals that were oftentimes necessary and companion to go with that project so that you can get you know, better better design, better floor plates, etc. So the county hasn't necessarily done that large overhaul throughout the entire county. What they've done is they've created different nodes where they've created specialized zoning around either rapid transit corridors or community urban centers. And in those community urban centers, you do see a lot more of the mixed use and pedestrian friendly type of development style that they're trying to encourage. It's a little tough because, as we all know, Miami-Dade County, it's all of the unincorporated areas and there's about 36 different cities. So we end up with sort of like the cheese left as opposed to the holes that would be the cities in the Swiss cheese. So it becomes a little bit difficult on how to create, you know, one unified zoning plan when there's so many different adjacent cities or particular nodes that stand alone and are, are easily differentiated from the, the greater whole.
0: I remember reading, it was a book by Mayor Manny uh, Diaz. And in the book at the, at the start, there's actually uh, the introduction is by Mayor Bloomberg in New York. And he tells them, you know, the, the best advice I could give you is when you go in there, you don't know what you don't know. So if you have a big idea, it's your first two years where you want to really execute that big idea. And I think that, you know, working the Little Havana area specifically, but really the city of Miami, I've seen a transformation that is due to Miami Twenty One, you know, zoning code, which we, you know, which I love. It's it's also appreciated from the point of view that it is understandable, right? It's clear the direction and the growth, and that there is a plan for for you know for that pathway. And to Jennifer's point, you know, I always look at what I love about looking at a zoning map is that you could really begin to learn what an area is, and to your point, what an area was, you know, because you could see where all of the old, you know, the big, you know, um, a boom in construction in 1925 was. And you see all of those center hallway, two, three story, you know, 10 to to 15 unit buildings that were built in that time. And then there is no boom. But then all of a sudden, between 1960 and 1979, you have these garden style, two story, six unit buildings that pop up, you know, and then you look at an area that has, you know, a, a major transit corridor, you're surrounded by large centers of employment. And so you kind of begin, to see the future growth and potential of an area from the point of view of an investor and the point of view of that growth. But, you know, every every time that you are planning to develop in, in, in South Florida, right, we have 30 different zoning codes <laughs> based on all the different, you know, municipalities. There are certain municipalities that have developed uh, a level of reputation for being very difficult to build on. And so before getting into some of those specifics, I wanted to ask you, when you're tackling, um, you know, difficulties in turning what is on the page, right, into reality, right? And you're you're dealing with, and this is why I think there's a lot of magic in Estrellita, which is that you have to deal with politics, you have to deal with, you know, having um, an engineer mindset, on how do we approach moving what is on paper to its reality and the interpretation of that. you know, And then you have to deal with, really, the people that work in the planning and zoning department and their own vision of how they interpret the code. When you're dealing with a municipality that is difficult to develop, right, is it the result of the code is not written well, or is it that the implementation is not carried out Efficiently, where where do you know if 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 you had the magic wand to be able to solve those issues in a planning and zoning department, would you start with the code or would you go straight into how that code is implemented?
2: So this is a great question because it's there's no easy answer, right? There's there's the folks that create the law, which sometimes are not necessarily architects, engineers, and practitioners. So we have those two forces that are sort of against each other in terms of, and I'll, I'll give you a great example. In Miami 21, there's a requirement that there be a 15 foot deep parking garage liner, right? So you see all of these developments and I'm sure you've dealt with some of this retail that's on the first floor or on the outer floors of a parking garage where You know, if the developer was building the least required 15-foot depth, that 15-foot depth doesn't do much for any sort of retailer, any sort of office. It's very difficult to put in an actual user within that space. So, of course, it was being designed so that you were putting in the minimum required by zoning. But then what's the effect is you have all this empty ground floor space for lease forever, That's unusable to any end user. So some of the earlier buildings that were being built um, under Miami 21, you know, was all right, we got to put 15 feet, 15 feet. We got it. Check. You know, we, we lined the garage. We're good. There's going to be an active use behind it, but they underestimated the response from the retailers and the actual consumer and the users of having to actually put in a usable operation within that space. So that's a good example of where, You know, politically, the idea was we don't want to see the ugly cars in the parking garages, and we don't want the exposed garages. Legislatively, they're like, no problem. We'll require a 15-foot, you know, active-use liner practically (laughs) nobody in the market on the real estate side can use a 15 foot depth of a, of a, of a space because you can barely put anything. So that's, that led to a lot of empty space. And then it led to the response from the developers saying, okay, well, 15 feet is not going to give us usable, leasable space to anybody or sellable space. We need to make it larger, even though the minimum is only 15. So that's an example of where, you know, the legislation and the actual needs of the, of the, real estate community and the changes between the architecture and the legislation don't really match up to the actual needs for the end user. That happens a lot. The other issue is that the folks that write legislation, they do their best job to anticipate a lot of these issues. Sometimes you can't anticipate them all. Um, so there are provisions in the code that, let's say, for uses that are you know not enumerated within the list of uses, you know, there is a provision that says the zoning director may, by interpretation, interpret if this use is compatible. So there are some, there is some wiggle room, so to speak, that's built into the codes so that the administration does have a, a bit of wiggle room to make interpretations that are still consistent with the code. Now, will they make those interpretations? it's very difficult because what they don't want to open the door to things that will create bigger problems. So it's often that there won't be an interpretation. If there's a fear of opening the door that would lead to, you know, letting the horse out of the stable. So the preferred method would be, okay, we can't make that interpretation, but go and see if you could get a code change. The code change is difficult because of course you need then a sponsor, you need to deal with a commissioner to see if they're even willing to sponsor it. And then you need to work through the administration process to be able to work on the legislation and see if that gets adopted. It's always a very difficult push. We've had to do it on many occasions, there's been occasion where as an industry we've gone to a city and said, this does not work for our industry. We need a code change and we want to approach it holistically, not you know, for one particular person. We want to address it as an industry. And I think those are the changes that are most successful is when we have, you know, an industry in totality that comes forward and says, look, this doesn't work. We need to address this. Let's have a workshop. This is act, this is actively done. We've done this. Right now, even in Miami-Dade County, we have a quarterly meeting of workforce housing and affordable developers and Mm -hmm. um, land use lawyers. And we meet quarterly with the county to go through different legislation that's either been adopted or even now with the live local bill, you know, the implementation of the live local bill locally, how that's going to work. So there's always opportunity through staff to have those discussions. And they're very open to understanding you know, what the limitation is and how can we create a workaround and what does that workaround look like?
1: It's interesting because you point out that some of the best intentions, right? For example, the 15-foot liner, that the reasoning behind requiring it was good right? It made sense. But then when you put it in practice, if they had had the right people at the table and asked the right questions, they would have realized that there's no demand for that type of space. So I think what you bring up is is super important that when these rules are being made, who, who are you going to have at the table to, to be involved in that discussion so that once something is passed and they don't want to change it or make exceptions because they don't want to let the horse out of the stable? It's a lot harder to do those changes then. Right. With Miami-Dade County, our zoning is ancient. So you say you meet quarterly to do changes in our old zoning based on the Live Local Act and some of the items that I believe Mayor Living Kava passed also related to affordable housing. In your opinion, is that the best approach or should Miami-Dade County really be looking at how fast we're growing, where we're growing, what our needs are? Um, And the reason I ask that question is because I feel like Miami-Dade goes in these huge growth spurts and then contracts with very little thought to planning. Recently, cities have started thinking more about, to your point, creating community and who's going to live there and what it looks like but I don't know if the county as a whole has. And so now with like this Live Local Act, what is that gonna look like? Does that just mean there is gonna be all of this affordable housing built everywhere in like a land rush, right? Without intentionality and thought being put at it because there is a housing crisis nationally and especially here.
2: First, the zoning code is a living document. It's being amended constantly. Every single commission meeting there's legislation that's being proposed and is being amended. So it's a constant living, breathing document. And there's always little bits of pieces of the code that can change overnight, so to speak. And by overnight, I mean, with proper notice, (laughs) the necessary days, first and second reading of the ordinance, but you know what I mean? And in terms of you know, what was law, you know, two months ago may have changed and it's now being implemented in a different way, which is why it's always very important to stay on top of the local jurisdiction and whatever changes that they may be working on. Miami Dade County has a whole department that just works constantly on legislation for planning and zoning. Now, they're gonna sort of elevate the issues that are more impactful across the entire county or issues that the public has brought up repeatedly as a as a matter that needs to be addressed. Our developers group that meets quarterly is specifically to workforce and affordable housing developers as they're working through the different projects and the different incentive programs that the county has, the different development programs, any changes that they may have for funding either at the state or at the county level. That's all holistically addressed in that workshop and that forum so it's not just from the zoning aspect it's also from you know public works with water and sewer capacity issues and how that would work our next one i believe is going to include somebody from the property appraiser's office since we have in the live local bill some property tax incentives in there as well when it relates to affordable housing so it's very holistic and I think that group does a great job because everybody speaks freely. Sometimes people are complaining intensely, but it's with good cause because you know the if the policy is we want affordable housing built now, but we have all of this other red tape that prevents us from getting there, you know, we're not meeting those policy objectives. And the folks that are sitting on the government side sometimes aren't aware of that. And they need us from the public sector and the private sector, pardon. Um, that is doing this type of business to let them know where the the rubs are and where they could help us improve the process. So that's currently what's going on now with the Live Local Act, because of course, it's very broadly written and it, at first glance, does sound like it's full free flow runaway development, as long as you're aiming at those affordable housing goals. That's not the case. It's limited to properties that are currently zoned for commercial, industrial, or mixed uses. There's a requirement that you provide at least 40% resident units as residential affordable. And that's based on the Florida statutes definition, not on our local definitions, which sometimes are affordable and workforce allow for greater than the 120%. So, you know, they're very nuanced differences. And then of course, in the Live Local Act, if it's a mixed use development, it needs a dedicated percentage of at least 65% of the total square footage to be dedicated to residential. And of that 65% that's dedicated to residential, at least 40% of those units have to be affordable. So part of what the county has been helping us dissect is line by line, you know, how they're looking to implement some of these things. The live local bill sounded like it said, you know, you could go as high and as dense. Yes, but there are interpretations of within the county of you know, how high and where and how dense. So right now the maximum density that's permissible based on their interpretations is 250 units per acre. And the maximum height that they're allowed to go to is the maximum height within their their own jurisdiction, which in this case, the way that the state legislation is written, allows them to include the properties that are in the rapid transit zones. So it's interesting when they go to dissect all of these aspects, Because what still remains is the setbacks, the FAR, the lot coverage, all of that's still gonna remain the same. So although you have this additional density and additional height, it does not necessarily mean that the site that you're looking to develop on will have the necessary floor area. And once you apply the, the setbacks that you would actually achieve that maximum 250 units per acre density.
1: Right. And that's why it's important. So we were having this conversation about something totally different, but what you read in the news, right? And and what comes across in the news, which is basically just a sound bite and, and an overview, becomes a lot less meaningful when you dig into the details in a given area. So we're hearing not, not that I don't think that the Live Local Act is great. I think it is going to help. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of really good legislation in there. And I think a lot of people are encouraged to look at affordable housing again because building affordable housing is extremely expensive. Yeah. So so I think that that's great. But if you read the news, it almost sounds like, oh, this act is going to solve most of our affordable housing woes, right? And then to your point, when you get into the detail, local zoning, maybe, maybe not, it's definitely going to help. But
2: the legislation basically prohibits the municipality from requiring a public hearing for specifically for use, for height and density. But those are just part of the zoning equation. You still have the setbacks. You still have lot coverage. You still have F.A.R. So those items, you're not the county or the city cannot require you to go to public hearing, but it's not to say that you won't end up in a public hearing process because of some other factor related to the development. This all was because of you know the not in my backyard folks, and this came from the west coast of Florida. Um, and they essentially have a lot less intensive zoning in a lot of those other um, areas that are outside of our county for the most part, you know, you don't see 150 units per acre anywhere or 250 per acre, or, you know, in Miami that we have a thousand units per acre in our central business district area. So, you know, the rest of the state is very, very low in their density. So, you know, I, I don't know how the rest of the state is taking this in terms of, you know, how they anticipate this would impact some of their more established single family residential areas. But I know here in Miami Dade County and city of Miami, you know, they're looking at this as a very positive for our affordable housing stock and that development, the land price is still the land price and we're still very expensive. So everybody's really crunching these numbers to understand with these incentives for the density and the height, along with the property tax, along with, you know, all of the other bits and pieces for financing and such, if it's, you know, if, It all pencils out to do these projects down here.
0: We're noticing that a lot of... um you know, owners have uh, the the moment the act was passed that you know they went back to reevaluate, right, <laughs> what they had and what they were gonna do with the with the properties that they owned. And um, you know, uh, we even had a couple of uh, clients of ours that were looking to sell some land and and now decided to reevaluate, uh, reevaluated it from the point of view of applying, you know, the the new law. It, it sounds to me that you are having at least the planning and zoning departments here in South Florida are having a purposeful approach to evaluate it and see how do we implement this we we have heard that there are planning and zoning departments throughout florida that are not even uh, looking at it, right? They, they're they're being very difficult in its application, uh, and partly it's because of what you mentioned. You know, it's so far removed from what they have uh, you know allowed in the past. So I know that there's always tweaks to a bill, and you know we should expect that there's going to be some upgrades in the next you know legislative session to uh, the Live Local Act. Many years ago, early in my career, I was walking um, Little Havana, we were looking at a property and and I remember the way that the agent was marketing the property, they were just going off of 150 units per acre. So he was just doing a normal division of how many square feet were in the lot and all that stuff. And the developer was like, well, you're not taking into consideration the circumference that I need to have in order to have ingress and egress to the parking area. You know, the, you're not really understanding, you know, FAR. You're not. So, you know, the complexities of it, which I'm sure it's Part of what you love about it because what we love about commercial is that there's nothing no day is ever the same right <laughs> and so you know i think what that attracts us is that there's a challenge inherent in you know in what you do and we know that there are cities here that have, municipalities that have developed a reputation for being very difficult to build. I wonder from from your point of view, some of these municipalities, you know, Miami Beach to a degree, Coral Gables, you know, even City of Miami. From, from your perspective, right, what could be done better by the planning and zoning departments? Because we feel that a lot of the issues that are faced in our city like affordable housing right and affordability a lot of those fights a lot of the the the, the progression is going to happen within the planning and zoning departments so what what do you think is inherently difficult about navigating development in some of those municipalities
2: I think the biggest difficulty is that sometimes the the cross communication between different departments isn't as strong as we would like so in policy wise in you know we've been talking city of miami and, and unincorporated date the policy is if you're building an affordable housing project you have an expedited building permit process it's expedited but it's still the same long building permit process and you're really not very expedited <laughs> so sometimes there's processes that we need from let's say the community development department They need to, if it's an affordable housing project, they normally need to certify that that project is meeting certain requirements, et cetera. That then goes to zoning. Zoning then does their review. So there's a lot of collaboration between the departments that needs to happen that they really put the onus on the project proponent to get all of those ducks in a row for them to then bring it in packaged rather than them talking to each other and making sure that this is a joint effort between the department's zoning and the developer to make sure that this affordable housing gets built. So, I think we lose a lot of time and momentum in trying to create this collaborative vision between the different departments that have to participate. I'd love to see there being some of those silos broken down so that, you know, there is a more direct line and understanding if, you know, if we need, you know, to submit this particular application or approval, let's say to the state by X deadline, that you know everybody's working in unison to meet those deadlines. Otherwise, the project gets pushed away. You don't meet the deadline. You can't get the funding for it or apply for the funding. That project's going to die, even though the developers already put it under contract, locked the property into an agreement with the seller or Know you're normally they won't purchase a property ahead if they're gonna go for tax credits, but they'll lock in the property, they've spent money there, they spent money on project design, they've spent money on on designing the basic set of project documents that would need to get approved by zoning. So it's a lot of money that gets invested into these things. And you know, by the time that you've generated your project plan, selected a site, like just think about how many people you've touched in that process from you know, the realtor, the different agents, the surveyor, the architect, the engineer, the lawyer, the, you know, plans processor. So it's it's a lot of money that goes into play. And I think sometimes there's a lack of understanding or appreciation, you know, from the city side of how much of an investment and risk goes into it from these proponents. You know, sometimes I feel that, you know, instead of looking for ways to get it approved, everybody's micro Looking at it to say, like, oh wait, we need to add this one little thing here that I found with a magnifying glass. And you know, you need to give me an additional measurement. And I get upset sometimes because, you know, every time we get a, a set of plans kicked back, we have to go back, we have to pay the architect, sometimes we have to pay an engineer. It's a lot of, you know, back and forth that we lose in time, which means that we're paying interest to somebody, or it's, you know, time that we're losing in due diligence, or, you know, it's it's time, it's money. So I I get upset sometimes (laughs) because, of course, you know, it's it's costly and I, I want it to be affordable and people end up getting pushed out of the affordability game because of the delays.
1: And I just want to point out to our listeners, because a lot of what you're saying, even though we're relating it to affordable housing or ground up development, A lot of these exact same zoning issues apply when you're doing a change of use or you're doing build out of a new restaurant space. You still have those issues and the plans that go back and forth. And I do want to do what we have done before with the city of Miami Gardens and give them a huge shout out for how they approach the process, which to the point that you had of all the different departments being separated, they have everybody in one room and you go and you submit your plans one day at your given hour, and everybody who is ever gonna touch those plans are looking at it and giving their input live with everybody else in the room. So, shout out to City of Miami Gardens.
2: Yeah, I I wanna say in in the good old days (laughs) in City of Miami, I remember being able to go and, and setting a meeting with zoning. So when we would submit our plans to zoning, I would go down there and take my entire list of every single zoning request that we had, and I would go through every single, you know, if it was the major use special permit, we had, you know, subsidiary permits called like class two or class ones. So we would go through and every single request, but it wasn't this like, oh, I found one problem, I'm kicking it back, change this one, bring it back to me. And then they re-reviewed again. Oh, wait, now lo and behold, I found this other problem that maybe should have been found before, but we didn't see it. So now we got to go back again. To me, it was it was a better way to get it accomplished because we understood and we had an opportunity to discuss the issue and make sure that it was being interpreted correctly, or if it was a matter of, you know, a critical need for the change. And you know, it took longer in terms of us one-on-one with staff at that juncture. But I think it saved us a lot of time and explanation and misunderstandings when you just get, you know, a denial and some obscure comments that sometimes are not really giving you the full gist of the picture of what it is that you need to correct.
1: Right, now can you tell us why that changed? Was it because of COVID and not working in the office or is it all because everything went online?
2: That, I, you know, I've been doing land use and zoning for almost 20 years now. So that was, you know, I want to say it was even before Miami 21.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So, Etreita, in your legal practice, and I think the answer to this question is not early enough, but when do most... Clients engage your services? You know, is it, is it right at the start of the process or is it usually they run into an issue and now they have to fix it and now they need a land use attorney and that's when they, they reach you?
2: So I want to say this answer depends on the sophistication of the client. And unfortunately, those that are less sophisticated will get a zoning attorney involved when they have a problem. Those that are sophisticated will get a land use attorney involved to avoid the problem. So, you know, during due diligence is the ideal. Typically, I like to get involved if it's on a buyer side before the contract is signed so that we can build in some protections and some guardrails in due diligence and even potentially negotiate within the agreement what it would cost us to extend due diligence. If I know that I'm at risk of needing that extension, I want to know how much it's going to cost me up front. My preference is always have the land use attorney on board if there's if you're looking to develop or you're looking to change the use, you definitely need some sort of land use attorney that's looking at the property, what's already been approved there, to see what the bigger issues are going to be that your client's may face. I was involved in a in a deal with Jennifer. It was I wasn't even on there as a land use lawyer, but we were looking at a lease and there was some legislation that I caught wind of that would otherwise Killed the entire deal just because of the way that the parking would have impacted that particular user and not having that zoning knowledge at that time would have probably put the parties in a really dire situation when they went to go implement and try to get their permit, they would have been hit with hundreds of thousands of dollars of parking impact fees that they weren't anticipating.
1: Right. And not... Not, not only that, but it would have affected the people who already had leases signed and had stuff under operation. And again, that goes back to our point that sometimes stuff that's well-intentioned isn't thought through all the way. And this was in an area in Winwood, And if they had done that, like all of those outdoor eating areas would have had a huge issue with parking. So we got her involved before we even signed the LOI <laughs> because it was it wasn't your regular building and it was a change of use and there's a ton of construction going on in Wynwood. So there is a lot of zoning and to your point, the little pieces that are constantly changed. And um, I felt so much better that my my tenant was definitely somebody who really appreciates land use attorneys and got her signed up before we even signed an LOI.
2: Yeah, I'm always surprised by how few people know that land use and zoning even exists because it's one of those things that it's passive. You don't really know that you're experiencing land use and zoning as you're driving around a city or a neighborhood. You just know when it's like wonderful zoning because you want to stay, right? So like those nodes that we're attracted to, that's like entertainment, retail and all that. That's because it's great zoning and it creates literally a place where people want to live, work and play. So you you recognize great zoning, but you don't really experience zoning from a, I know what's going on. It's, it's like a passive aspect of your everyday living.
1: Right. I want to see if we can switch a little bit just to sustainability and green initiatives, because I know that's something that you've written about before. It's something you believe in. Um, It's something we believe in passionately. And being here in Miami, where we're constantly getting all of the publicity about how we're ground ground zero for climate change and the issues with insurance, which, by the way, are affecting everybody across the world. We're not the only ones experiencing um, increase in insurance. But can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in either zoning codes or in, in developments that, P, that the developers are actually pushing for some type of sustainability or issues related to climate change to be included in their projects.
2: So the, the biggest discussion right now is really around sea level rise and around basically stormwater management. And whenever you're doing a development project, each individual property is required to maintain their own stormwater management on their own site. So it's usually based on a calculation. You know, we have basically the one in 100 year flooding event, et cetera. But these calculations have been sort of the crux of how we determine what how big of a drain field you need, what, you know, what kind of engineering you might have to do to the site in order to prevent excessive flooding. So that's one of those aspects that's going to continue to be of interest because I believe over time that's going to be something that's going to be more of a of an interest point for development, whether or not it's regulated from the government side, I think most developers that are the smart, better developers that are thinking long-term are looking at how they implement potential flooding and sea-level rise into their projects. Like one good example of someone that did that, you know, going way back is essentially Brickle City Center. The way that Brickle City Center is engineered is they basically have a whole entire concrete square inside another pool of water. So if water does flood, it floods into the under the pool that's underneath and it doesn't actually flood any of the underground parking. But that That took foresight and it took a lot of engineering and it took a lot of money. So what we're seeing also is folks that are doing passive landscaping design so that it will alleviate potential flooding onto the actual site. So for example, if you're along the waterfront, features that allow for pedestrian walkway, then some sort of landscaping feature that goes up intentionally, and then some sort of other dip so that if the water is to rise above the natural um, seawall line, then there's some other levels before you get to impacting the built environment. And then there's somewhere else that would catch and have like a reservoir effect. And again these are the better folks are creating these into things that appear to be externally as an amenity right so now you have a, a large dog run with a park that's hilly and they have you know more places to run or whatnot but really it doubles as the amenity but also an infrastructure improvement so i think we're seeing more of that
1: and that's all you know, by design, <laughs> purposely by design. So, for example, would those require zoning changes or some kind of change? Because, again, these are forward thinking developers, think, you know, that. We, didn't necess- we don't necessarily have the zoning in place or the requirements in place, or has Miami-Dade County been um, progressive enough to to say these are designs that we want incorporated in new construction?
2: So a couple of the different jurisdictions, and I'm, I'm not going to get the whole list right, but a lot of the coastal jurisdictions have adopted something called freeboarding. Freeboarding basically says... Um, let's say you're a single family home and your maximum height that you're allowed to build is 18 feet. So normally those 18 feet do not start until what's essentially the flood level. So let's say you're at a, where your property is, you have an elevation of plus four that you have to build at to be your finished floor at flood, right? So now you'd be, 4 plus your 18 which your building would be at 22 feet total height. So they're allowing what's called freeboard about 5 feet of freeboarding which would allow your you to put instead of your house at the 4 foot at the 9 feet. So now it's higher and then your height will be allowed to exceed that for the freeboarding. So that gets you more what would otherwise be like either basement area or area that would be breakaway walls or anything that would otherwise be below, you know, prospective sea level or otherwise impacted by sea level rise over time. So those are being implemented in different cities. That gets you, you know, that's an easy way to get around having to amend all the height requirements and etc. So it's basically the freeboard area is excluded from the height. Um, And that's been really helpful to sort of push in that direction. That also in that same freeboarding style would allow for, you know, that sort of what I just spoke about in terms of having a project that goes a little bit higher in its natural sloping on the site and be able to play with some of these other like dips and valleys within its own site to be able to create its own capturing of water throughout, you know, and again, there's different methods to be able to capture, but that's just one example.
1: That's good to hear. And I, I'm, I'm impressed with Miami Beach because obviously they have a major issue with flooding. I mean, they had it just with King Tides way before climate change was even an issue just because of where they're located. But in addition to some of the sustainability and green initiatives that they've implemented, I read about a really cool project that they are doing with the Miami City Ballet for affordable housing. So I'm doing that shout out out there if anyone wants to look at it. All, all of this stuff and and Estrellis um examples are going to be in the show notes, but I just wanted to give a shout out for those forward-thinking hashtag forward-thinking um,
0: cities. Well, we're getting we're getting to the end. This has been a, a wonderful uh, a, you know uh, episode to be able to spend time with you, Estrellita We we are so appreciative, and uh, as always, we we like to end with a um, a stat. My partner over here always tells me I'm stealing her stats, so I gotta get let her go first. well i think we we should have our guests go first and share did you i I didn't give her much
1: notice so i don't know if she has it but do you have a fun stat or (laughs) i have a fun
2: fact so my fun fact is and maybe you guys know the answer to this but do you know where the only rainforest is in the continental united states a
0: rainforest rainforest in the is in the continental United States. No.
2: It's right here in Miami-Dade County. It's at Fairchild Tropical Gardens. And oh. at Fairchild, wow. they actually have a two-acre rainforest within their 300 and something acres. And it's one of my favorite places in Miami.
1: Yeah, Fairchild's amazing. We'll put that tag in there too, people. Yeah. It.
2: So if you go there, it's actually almost like 10 degrees cooler in this rainforest and it has waterfalls, it has beautiful orchids all around year round and it's really magical. So
1: you I've know been where me. I meet? had no idea yeah. that it was the largest yeah. yeah, one. It's awesome. That's, that's awesome. awesome.
0: That's a great stat.
1: Okay, so mine is related to new business openings because we were talking about zoning and, you know, changes of use and everything else. So um, this is from a Yelp study. In 2022, the Miami metro area recorded 20,572 new businesses, which is the third most openings in the country. It's 14% more than the openings in 2021. And if you include Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, um, we were number three behind New York City and Los Angeles. Wow. So. You should be really busy yesterday. that. (laughs) exactly. I know you are. That's why it was like, can we squeeze you in, please?
2: Well, I definitely always have time for you all. And I think this is such a great program. And I'm really thankful for you all putting this together and taking the time to educate some of our fellow listeners and the folks within the real estate industry and those that are outside looking in. Um, We're always... Looking to bring more people into our kind of game here. So,
0: <laughs> well, it looks like you're going to have a lot of work ahead of you. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, stories in the news about um, Miami Dade County and Miami losing, you know, population, which really, uh, unfortunately, it was erroneous reporting, according to the Brookings Institute. Miami-Dade County is one of only 11 counties in the U.S. that are back to positive population growth in 2021-2022 after the pandemic-driven population decline. And, um, you know, Florida is the number one destination for foreign buyers. We know that 54% of all you know foreign buyers buy in uh, in Miami and buy in South Florida. So you know there's there's a lot of work ahead for you <laughs> and for all of us in in our community of real estate to make sure that we take care of people, to make sure that we give them uh, you know um, uh, affordable opportunities uh, to uh, to remain a, par- a part of the fabric of our community. And you know we appreciate everything you do and your time and. Uh, it's been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you, Estreida. Now you know why she's a big star in our book.
2: Thank you, Fernando. Thank you so much, Jennifer.